I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through the Tacklebox membership, and we think through startup strategy every Wednesday on the Idea to Start Up Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, or you're ready to launch something, or you already launched something and you're running full steam ahead. We're here to help with the counterintuitive stuff. On to it. Today, we're going to take the system we've been building over the last two weeks that helps you start building a startup in an hour a day for a spin. I used the system to test out an idea I've been obsessing over and I kept notes as I went. We'll follow this idea through a two-week sprint, and while it was tempting, I promise I am not going to subject you to hearing more about vertical farms. Today, we're going to test out a different idea, VR to help chronic pain. The things that popped up over the last two weeks fleshing out this idea should be helpful for you building out your system to test an idea in an hour a day. To quickly recap how we got here, two weeks ago, we started by freeing up an hour for you. This startup on the side thing simply doesn't work if you need to tack an hour on top of everything else you're doing. No one actually has any free time. We're all a bunch of goldfish growing to the size of our bowls. This is where a mental model that far too few people take advantage of comes into play remove things, don't add them, to make progress. There's an old experiment where a bunch of people are put in a room and given a bridge made out of Legos that doesn't stand. They're then given a bin of extra Legos and told to make the bridge as sturdy as possible using as few Legos as possible. Basically, everyone stresses and sweats over finding the perfect three or four blocks that'll fortify the bridge. A few clever people are able to do it with just two Legos. But basically no one tested realizes that the whole reason the Lego bridge is rickety in the first place is that there's an extra piece stuck on one of the bridge's columns that's throwing off its balance. If you just remove that piece, the bridge is stable as a table and you haven't used any new Legos. In fact, you got rid of one. But no one sees that solution, because humans like to build. We've got a blind spot for removing stuff to make progress. Editing our writing to make it clearer, decreasing features to make a product grow faster. But to sustainably take on anything new, step one is making space for it. Remove to add. Week one dealt with behavioral and emotional debt, identifying the stuff you're subconsciously holding onto because at one point in your life it was useful, but now it isn't. We scrape those off like barnacles from the hull of a boat. It's actually pretty easy to find an hour this way. Hopefully you did. By the way, once you recognize the remove to make progress model, it's hilarious how often you'll see people mess it up in real life. I'm working from the office today, a WeWork in Midtown, and I just bumped into a guy who has the office maybe 20 feet down the hall from me. He's extremely nice. He's the closest thing I've got to a work friend since this building is about 95% vacant. He flew out of his office a few minutes ago, frantically typing on his phone while simultaneously putting his lunch in the microwave and getting ready to fill up his water bottle. I asked how everything was going, and not surprisingly, he said he was, quote, stressed as hell. But, he continued, I've taken up meditation and running to combat the stress. An hour run each morning, and a 30-minute meditation right after lunch. So, this is probably the most stressed you'll ever see me, he smiled and laughed as he dropped his water bottle on the ground. Sure, I thought, tacking on an hour and a half of obligations each day should definitely free up some time for you. No problem. But humans do that. We build to solve problems. So stress Steve from 15C is tossing more on his plate in an effort to empty it. Anyway, after freeing you up for an hour the first week, last week we figured out what your entrepreneurial makeup is, what part storyteller, builder, and manager you are. Each needs very different forms of support. 
If you don't know which type of entrepreneur you are, you can't figure out what tasks you'll need extra support on. If you don't get support, those tasks will grind you to a halt. Usually looking at what you know you need to do, but for some reason just haven't been able to bring yourself to do is the easiest way to identify your makeup. Been meaning to write 25 cold emails for the last four weeks and just can't get yourself to do it? Hello there, storyteller. We then briefly outlined a system you can build to get momentum with that free hour and your newly uncovered entrepreneurial identity. But the end of last week's pod lacked teeth. It was all theoretical, and that is not what we do here. Anyone can build a theoretical startup. In fact, that's most startups. I seem to attract people who say things like, quote, I had the idea for WeWork, or I had the idea for Snapchat, or come on, I could have built Spanx. Lots of theoretical founders, but not here. So we'll practically start something today using the system. And the place I want to start is the highest level of the system, the counterintuitive part. And that is, what is the system actually built to do? What are we hiring it for? This is a mindset thing, and you've got to nail it to have any chance. The mindset is around how to approach hard problems. When people start working on an idea, the correct output or metric or goal is tricky. If, like we'll talk through today, I'm thinking about building a VR program that helps people with chronic pain, the output of my entrepreneurial system should be a product, right? Or maybe funding or a co-founder. But those things all seem pretty far in the future. Maybe it's a pitch deck. I think this is one of the stickiest moments for an entrepreneur. And I think sticky is the right word. It's like that strip your grandma used to hang on the patio to catch flies. If you don't know what you're working towards, it's hard to prioritize what to do, which means you do usually nothing. The ambiguity catches you like those flies. Or possibly worse, you adopt the obvious stepping stones. You assume that the path to a startup is straightforward, that it goes something like idea, funding, team, growth, Forbes 30 under 30, buy your own island, bing, bang, boom. The problem is that the stepping stones for hard problems are not straightforward. That's what makes a problem hard. We don't know how to solve it or even the best path to approach solving it. If the steps were straightforward and the idea had value, the thing would have already been done. Capitalism is efficient. The process then can't be predictable by definition. You're solving a hard problem, which means people don't know how to do it. This is particularly unsettling because for most of your life, you've worked on what I would characterize as easy problems. And I don't mean that as a put down. Easy problems can take enormous effort to solve. Getting it to Princeton takes a lot of effort and is statistically unlikely, but it's an easy problem. The stepping stones are clear. If you get certain scores on tests and do certain extracurriculars and make friends with alumni or teachers that can recommend you and you nail the SATs, you will probably solve the problem. The tactics for that strategy then, the stepping stones, are straightforward. If you're struggling with tests, get a tutor. If you're struggling with the SATs, take a prep class. If you still can't get in, hire Aunt Becky to Photoshop you onto a water polo player's body. Roughly 99% of jobs are that way too. Possibly challenging, but logistically straightforward. So when you get to a hard problem, which is any startup idea worth its salt, the stepping stones aren't clear and that's hard. There's a book I love on this called Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned. I'll pop it in the show notes if you feel like geeking out a bit. For hard problems, it's not obvious what you need to build. It's not obvious who to start with or how to get their attention or what'll click. The metrics, your startup's version of tests, extracurriculars, and SATs are not obvious. They'll take some extra effort and trial and error just to find. So that is what we need to optimize for. 
This is a different type of problem which requires a different type of approach, mindset, and system than you're used to, which is what we're going to go into today. Man, I loved figuring out today's episode. Fun, fun, fun. Because helping entrepreneurs build a system to solve hard problems is, in itself, a hard problem. It's one of the ones worth doing. So, let's get into the system. Let's get some inspiration from Meg Ryan and You've Got Mail, hands down the greatest rom-com of all time, and the opening credits of The Office, which will all make sense, I promise. And let's do it after a little smooth jazz. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and want to test out the former before you leave the latter, come and work with us. Apply at gettacklebox.com. Over 400 startups have tested and built ideas through our program, and those businesses are now collectively worth over a billion dollars. Our program helps you prioritize and execute, and our members and me and the team keep you accountable and give you feedback along the way. Come build with us at gettacklebox.com. Back to it. There are two overarching rhythms that'll anchor your early startup days. The first one goes learn, test, learn, test. I think of it as a living, breathing thing. Inhaling information and then exhaling a test based on what we learned over and over and over. Your system should be designed to learn things about your customers that other people don't know. At its heart, that's what a startup is. Knowing something important about people that no one else knows. Finding a secret that matters. If you have that, you have a business. So the inhale of the system is the intake of unique data points about your customer. Early on, these are almost all going to be collected manually. Conversations with customers. Ethnographic research where you watch people do their job and ask them questions as they do. Conversations with experts. Then you'll start to develop a point of view. That's when the system exhales. You take what you've learned or what you think you've learned and you send it back out in the world to see if it resonates. Then you inhale back the information, refine your perspective, and send something else out. Get an opinion, test the opinion, refine the opinion. An entrepreneur does two things. Collect dots and connect dots. The system helps you collect unique dots and then test whether what you've connected makes any sense. The second rhythm of the system is much more fixed. It's what we'll use day to day. I like to structure this into two-week sprints. This part of your system has three parts and drives the inhales and the exhales. The parts are question, tactics, and structure. We'll dive into each today with the VR idea. But before we do, there's one more important point I need to make. You will likely need to adjust what your vision of success looks like. Success is the machine pushing you to collect dots, then you carving out the time to connect them, and then trying that over and over again. Success for a startup can feel flat as you collect the dots, and then there will be a spike as the right combination of dots gives you some level of clarity, and then things will flatten out again as you need to learn more to lead to another spike. Interesting takes time. To operate with this, you'll need to take pride in the system and in being relentlessly curious. Becoming the type of person who loves digging in on stuff and realizing a lot of it won't go anywhere in the moment, but will build up your library of context and you'll draw from it as you go. Collecting dots, whether it's obvious what they'll do in that moment, is always going to be useful. Curious people always win in the startup space. Lots of people tell entrepreneurs to act like scientists, to test and learn. The problem with that is basically no one has ever been a scientist. There are 46,999 scientists in the U.S. right now, according to a random Google search I did. That's about 0.01% of the population, so saying act like a scientist doesn't land with basically anybody. Instead, I think you should act like my dog, Ruby. I think that's more relatable. This morning, I was walking young Rubes as I do every morning in Central Park. 
We were walking between Columbus and Central Park West on 88th, where the brownstones all have a door and a knocker because there's just one person that lives there, which truly still blows my mind. These folks tend to put out Halloween decorations, and Ruby couldn't help herself. She went up to the fake spiderwebs and smelled them, then went up to the fake gravestones and smelled them, then peed on one, then cautiously went up to a giant spider that has a motion detector. It shakes and screams when you go near it. She immediately sensed something was off with the spider. She knew she shouldn't do it, but she couldn't help herself. She stuck her nose right into the spider's kitchen and the thing erupted into shrieks and flashing lights and Rubes leapt about two feet in the air and then sprinted away, whining and pulling on the leash with her tail between her legs. On the way home, she dragged me all the way to the other side of the street just to avoid that spider. My point is, be your dog. If you don't have a dog, be my dog. Be endlessly curious. Sniff around everywhere. Try and learn everything. Everything works out much better when it has a clear identity. Your identity should be curiosity. Work at it. Own it. Because as I said, interesting takes time, and curiosity is resilient. So let's get back to VR and chronic pain. In 2017, I got hit in the head by some jackass while I was playing basketball as a ringer in a corporate league, and ever since then, I've had headaches. These headaches were incapacitating for a few years, then unbearable, then somewhat bearable, and now, thankfully, just a minor annoyance. I've had step function improvements in how I felt as I've gone from one treatment to the next, probably 15 in all. It's been a journey. If you have something similar, email me. I've got a roadmap. Along the way, I've learned a ton about chronic pain and met a ton of people with chronic pain. Headaches and lower back seem to be the two places that hit most people the hardest. The treatments for this range from drugs to shots to physical therapy to acupuncture, chiropractor, and craniosacral to something called CBT. Some work for some people, some don't. In general, the shift away from drugs and towards things like CBT has been pronounced. I get excited about treatments like CBT, which is short for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, because the goal is to marry the mental and nervous system response with the pain. It's a psychological treatment that's been as or more effective than medicine or other treatments in many cases. I get excited because it explains things. When I went to doctors for years telling them of relentless, constant headaches, they'd say there was nothing structurally wrong with me, and there was nothing they could do. They often implied I was making it up. Further, once your problem is labeled chronic, most doctors, even the top ones, especially the top ones, won't treat you. Lots of people with chronic pain have nothing structurally wrong, which means the diagnosis is usually, quote, learn to live with it. Solving chronic pain is a hard problem. The stepping stones to solving it are not clear. Which means we've got to try stuff further and further off the beaten path because people would have tried everything else. So when I saw VR for chronic pain getting some buzz, I got excited. The underlying idea is that chronic pain is often triggered by our realities. Your body is used to the feeling of pain when you wake up in your bed or sit down at your desk or play with your kid. The pattern becomes reinforcing. Your body delivers the feeling of pain when maybe there isn't a structural reason for it just because it's done that in the past. Our bodies are habit machines. To stop this, you basically need to rewire your brain to fix the pattern of if X then Y equals pain. VR was doing it. Your brain can only handle one reality at a time, and in a VR world, there were no familiar triggers for chronic pain because the entire immersive world was foreign. So spending some time in the VR world, along with CBT while in there and out, is apparently showing some great early signs for folks with really bad chronic pain. Okay, so that is what I'm excited and curious about. But now what? What do I build? What do I do? 
How do I start? I already freed up an hour a day and I'm well aware that I'm a storyteller. So now what? Two weeks ago, I jumped in. As I've said, I recommend two-week sprints. Those sprints are anchored by the three parts of our system. Question, tactic, structure. So I needed to come up with a question that I'd spend the first two weeks trying to answer. Your first question and usually the 25 after that are about customer. Specifically, how do they solve the problem now? The goal is to start narrowing the customer into distinct segments based on how they interact with the problem. How urgent, frequent, expensive, growing, and painful it is. Their current options. Their mindset. In this scenario, it's tempting to lead with a question about the solution, not the customer. Specifically, does VR tech actually work for relieving chronic pain? But I promise you, the solution is never the place to start. The harder, more urgent question is always about the customer. So the question I led with was simple. How are customers approaching the treatment of chronic pain now? It's very broad. There's going to be a ton of people on the top of the funnel, and that is my hope, that this will funnel me down to a customer that's a little bit more manageable. Some sub-questions I wanted to learn too. What are the big boundaries between types of chronic pain and types of customers here? Where can I find people that have these different types? How do people characterize it? How do they feel about the solutions? What have they tried? What do they recommend? During the early days, I tell myself to think about the Mona Lisa. Here is what I mean. There are obviously tons of people with varying levels of chronic pain. There are tons of people I could try to help, but I've only got the bandwidth for one. If my customer bloats, I'll never stand a chance. So I think about being a museum curator. There's a basement full of paintings, but we've only got one spot on the wall. We need to put the best customer or painting there. So I think about the Mona Lisa. That's where we're out to find. Once you've got the question down, the next piece are the tactics that you use to try and answer it. If I want to have a unique opinion on how customers approach the treatment of chronic pain now, I need to know how customers approach the treatment of chronic pain now. There are an array of tactics I can use here, but I'll stick with the big one for today. The one you should go for, ethnographic research. Basically, hands-on conversations and interactions with everyone involved in the problem now to try and get as unbiased and realistic a view on how it gets solved now and for who as we can. I need to be endlessly curious about the current process to build a better one, because it's rare something changes people's behavior wholesale. We need to identify behavior that is ripe for interception, identify the existing infrastructure we'll need to work with, and identify the words and methods to build people's trust. To do this, there are three big groups. First, I want to speak with people who have the problem now, who are in the throes of chronic pain. Next, I want to speak with people who have tried VR to solve the problem already, whether successfully or not. And finally, I want to speak with some experts on chronic pain. Ideally, I want someone who's pro-VR and someone who's against it, or even better, a couple of each. I don't know where exactly this will get me. Again, it's a big problem and I want to start forming a unique opinion on it, which means I need to start tying together my mental map of how the thing works. I need to collect some dots. I decided to tackle speaking with each of these groups one at a time. First, the people with chronic pain. I have a few good hub-and-spoke approaches for that. I made my way through three different chronic pain clinics and have 10 or so connections I can reach out to directly to kick things off. There are also endless chronic pain Facebook groups, a few messages and a few of them with a note, quote, looking to speak with folks who have struggled with chronic pain for a few years and would be willing to try something new was enough to get 10 calls scheduled. The next group was slightly tougher, people who had tried VR for chronic pain already. 
There's an incredibly popular New York Times article on the potential for VR for chronic pain that actually brought my attention to the issue initially. I searched for who had shared it on various platforms, then sifted through responses to find a few people who mentioned that they'd tried it. Then I decided to try something a bit colder. I created a few YouTube polls that sat on top of exercise videos on YouTube for chronic back pain. They basically asked if people had tried VR for chronic pain before, then if they said yes, I had a link they could go to and put in their email to chat with me. Finally, the experts. Theoretically the hardest, but practically the easiest. There are roughly 10 papers written on the potential of VR for chronic pain with a few leaders in the field. They all work at universities and all have public emails. I emailed each, and all but one were happy to jump on a call. People love talking about what they're interested in. The goal for the two weeks was to collect dots on that high-level question. The outreach for all these and thinking up the strategy completely filled my hours from Sunday to the following Sunday. Eight hours, all to schedule calls. But I got 25 scheduled over the next 15 days. Dots incoming. The last piece of the question tactic structure framework is the structure. Structure is critical and usually uncomfortable. The structure of these sprints and this work you're doing is something you should constantly be tweaking. I break structure down into two core pieces, friction and leverage. Your system's job is to adjust friction so that you do more of what you need to do and less of what you don't need to do, and to use leverage to get hard things, or things your entrepreneurial profile predisposes you to be bad at, done, fast, while you sleep. Here's an example from my last sprint. As a storyteller, I'm always worried that I'm being annoying when I reach out to people, even if I'm trying to help them. I've got a lot of natural friction that keeps me from, say, sending 50 cold emails to people when I want to run customer interviews. So I built out a structure to decrease the friction, a way to remove all the cognitive overhead that holds me back from sending out cold emails. First, I have a Notion project planning page, the one I'll send to you if you sign up at gettacklebox.com rhythm. It has a list of people I want to speak with. During the hours of 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., I've set up a tool called Blockus to redirect any of my time-wasting websites to that page. So if I try to go to ESPN, I get the Notion page instead. If I send one cold email, I then get to go to ESPN for a minute or two. I've also got examples of form emails in Notion, so crafting something compelling is easy. This increases the friction to something bad, going to ESPN, and reduces friction for something good, sending a cold email. I use leverage here, too. I hired someone off of Fiverr to aggregate and draft cold emails to people with chronic pain, clinics, and experts. I gave them a list of the types of people I wanted to send the email to, a rough draft for each with a specific piece of information I wanted them to research, and had them schedule all of those cold emails to go out the following Sunday at noon. This cost $25 an hour and took six hours. Then, starting on Friday, I sifted through all the scheduled emails to make sure nothing was crazy or I added a personal touch here or there. I spent my hour on Friday and Saturday on it. Then, on Sunday, 150 cold emails went out as scheduled. The train was leaving the station and it was up to me to edit those emails, not create them from scratch. The deadline of them all going out on Sunday created urgency. Build your system to create friction for things you don't want to do, remove friction for things you want to do, and add leverage, external people helping you to move things along. Another form of friction that needs to be smoothed has to do with getting to work on your startup at all. Context switching is really hard. Moving your mindset from reactive work with your day job to proactive work is a full 180. And now we finally get to our office anecdote. 
I heard an interview with Kevin from the office about how they used to film the show. Apparently, they'd all get to work at like 8 or 8.30 in the morning or whenever people working on shows get there. They'd do wardrobe and makeup and everything, and they'd take their places in the office. Then, every single time they filmed, they'd just sit there, pretending to work, making small talk, getting faxes and making copies, picking up ringing phones. They were told it was for the opening credits, but after the 30th straight day of doing it, they all knew it wasn't. The director said he needed them to act like they were actually co-workers, so building up that muscle of sitting there would help them context switch into how someone in an office would act. They did it for a full 30 minutes before they filmed each episode. Do this when you work on your startup. When your sacred hour starts, have a ritual to context switch. Here is what I do. First, I take 20 deep breaths. They're loud and messy. I exhale in a way that I'd be embarrassed if I did it in a Starbucks. Then I look at the front page of my Notion doc, which has my goals for this project. One, be endlessly curious about how people interact with and solve chronic pain. Two, be creative about how I collect dots so I can have a truly unique perspective. Three, enjoy this hour. Make it the best one of the day. Then I put on the same Jazz Vibes playlist from Spotify, the one that I only play during these hours, and I go. Context switching is really hard. Rituals will help train your brain to do it. The next type of leverage I love is simple accountability. Two weeks ago, I told a good friend of mine, who I have a ton of respect for, that I was going to spend the next two weeks speaking with customers about VR for chronic pain. Then I sent him a meeting invite for Sunday at 8 p.m. that lasted 10 minutes. I'd present everything I learned to him then, my new, unique perspective, and what I needed to learn next. This guy is a good friend who will listen to my presentations and push back every other Sunday for the next 10 years if I wanted him to. But this works just as well if you alternate between people. Getting yourself on the hook is critical, and a sense of closure to a question and approach is useful too. My presentation is what I learned, the tactics I used to learn them, my big question for the next two week sprint, and my execution plan. Then the key sentence, what opinion do I have that others don't? I then ask my friend three big questions. First, am I being ambitious enough? Second, am I giving my customer the chance to tell me I'm an idiot? Are there enough interactions with customers to let me know that I'm on the wrong path if I am? And third, where can I add more leverage? What else can I outsource? So what opinions do I have after my first two weeks? A lot, actually. First, doctors and experts are ridiculously excited about this potential. The delta between prescribing opioids or a VR headset is massive, and it shows. Second, there's a group of customers I'm working on boundaries for who will try just about anything. This group has tried all the treatments I was aware of, plus 10 more. This is usually headache pain, it's usually been going on for two plus years, and it usually stemmed from an injury. Lots more to learn, but a good start. My wife and I watched You've Got Mail the other night, and there was a line that grabbed me by the shoulders and shook me a little bit. And it wasn't the Tom Hanks speech where he waits a beat and then says, for as long as we both shall live. I knew that one was going to get me, and boy, did it. It was another time when Meg Ryan is talking about her small bookstore and why she's stayed and done it all her life. She says, quote, Sometimes I wonder about my life. I lead a small life. Well, valuable, but small. And sometimes I wonder, do I do it because I like it or because I haven't been brave? Leverage is the way to be brave, to get out of your small life and get other people working or helping you collect dots that'll matter. Be curious. Be Meg Ryan. Be Brian's dog, Ruby. Start something that matters in an hour a day. This was the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job, head to gettacklebox.com. If you like the pod, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It goes a long way.
Have a great week.